Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are uh, doing this episode a few minutes after noon on Wednesday, November 9th. And we are uh, in the day after the big 2022 midterm. And uh, as you must know already, um, a lot remains undecided, but the sort of the theme of the night, the big story of the night is pretty clear. Uh, we were, uh, or at least many of us were expecting a red wave and that did not happen. Um, you know, in some ways this is a, uh, it's a weird kind of mirror image of 2020 in a way, because, you know, it still seems very likely, uh, that Republicans will control the house of representatives. Democrats will lose control of the House. Uh, it is still not totally clear who is going to uh, run the Senate, although I heard some stuff uh, informally just before we started the episode that seems to make it pretty clear to me that the Democrats are going to be in control, that basically uh, they are going to go into that Georgia runoff at uh, Democrats 50 Republicans 49. Now, I, I you know, I don't I, I can't say that I'm not reporting that definitively as news. Uh, but, you know, you hear from people who are kind of on the ground and looking at all the little details and the outstanding numbers and stuff like that. And that's how it looks. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's one of these things where, it, you know, in um, before this mid before last night, one of the things that I think people kind of had lost track of is that going into 2022, Democrats had won two straight elections. They won big in 2018. They didn't take the Senate, but they came back strong in the House. And then they, in in 2020, they won the presidency. They lost some ground in the House, but they won the Senate. But 2020 has been this funny kind of thing because in terms of expectations, it was closer than people thought. People thought that you know, uh, it's going to be the sort of the anti-Trump wave. And it was a little, it wasn't quite that. Joe Biden won, had a solid win in the Electoral College, but it was close in a lot of states. And it was closer than people thought in a lot of states. And the Democrats did lose ground in the House. Um, but it's always important to, and, and there was a lot of sense there, wow, they really, you know, they choked. They didn't get it done. 
And, um, you know, in, in, in some ways that's right, but it's always important to remember they choked relative to expectations. But expectations are an artifact of polling that kind of means nothing. That just means you had this idea of how it was supposed to be based on polls, and it wasn't quite that. So that's kind of an artifact. That's sort of an illusion. And um, in some ways, there are some elements of, of last night's result that are a little like that. On the other hand, um, this was Joe Biden's first midterm. Uh, Republicans did quite well in terms of redistricting. We can say accurately that unemployment remains very low. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of positive things about the economy, but the experience of a lot of people of the economy is inflation. And the fact that we can, you know, you can be as dyed in the wool a Democrat as they come, but you know that when you go to the grocery market, there are a lot of food items that just cost a lot more than they did. And gas is down, but it's still, you know, it's it's still pretty high. So this isn't just um, this isn't just a surprise kind of relative to expectations. This is a surprise relative to historical baselines, you know, and and fundamentals. And um, so we're going to talk all about all about this. Uh, we are. Well, you know, what is there really to uh, prep or discuss? We're going to get into the whole thing. But before we do, let me remind you uh, that temperatures are dropping, dropping more for some people than for others this morning. Uh, temperatures are dropping, leaves are falling, and the sun is setting halfway through your lunch break. But for everyone on Team Cold Brew, it's still iced coffee season. If you're a proud year-rounder, it's time to put on your flannels, fill your tumbler with ice, and top it off with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew. With regular and decaf options, you can finally enjoy velvety smooth cold brew all day, every day, even in the depths of winter. You're ready to savor every shiver? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, co-host Kay Riga, what do you think? It has been a wild ride, I have to say. I would say that in all earnestness, and I should have staked out my claim on the pod so no one can accuse me of <laughs> lying now, but I did in my heart of hearts think that Democrats were going to win the Senate right up till yesterday. Um, you know, I just, the, the Republican candidates in these key, key races were just so weird. And, you know, the races, even in the polling, were kind of all within a margin of error. But never in my wildest dreams did I think that the House would be on the table. I really didn't. I mean, you look at the, um, you know, Obama 2010, Clinton 94, where they both came in with trifectas, shellacking, you know, lost 50 seats, 60 seats. And here we are kind of contemplating a future where it comes down to a handful of seats and now having to deal with the you know, agita that comes from the possibility that Democrats could lose the House based on, you know, Republican gerrymanders or, or right. Ohio Republicans refusing to redraw the maps like their state Supreme Court told them. And that's a whole, you know, different kind of um, negative emotion than, than I'd originally planned. Um, but let's let's go chamber by chamber. Let's start with the Senate just because the, the races there are a bit more, you know, manageable since we're only kind of talking about five or six of them. 
I think one of the biggest surprises to me was not that Fetterman won, because in my heart of hearts, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania, so I finger on the pulse. I I just, I really thought he would win. Oz is too weird. Fetterman's too good a candidate. I know the stroke stuff, but I just thought he would pull it out. But not only did he pull it out, he pulled it out in a way that his race got called Tuesday night. I mean, I never would have expected that, especially when you had all these various Republican shenanigans kind of aimed at cordoning off the Democratic votes there and, and pushing their counting back. You know, you had targeting the, the undated mail-in ballots, and then you had this last minute procedure to slow the Philly vote count, all of which seemed to set up a situation where the solidly Democratic pot of votes for Fetterman will come in, you know, Wednesday, maybe even Thursday, and then set the stage for Republicans to be like, fraud, you know, Oz was winning night of, like, this is bullshit. Well, we never even got there because Fetterman decimated Oz. I mean, not as much as Shapiro did, but Shapiro was running against a guy who had no money ever at all in the cycle. And Fetterman was in, you know, a more competitive race. And we found out hours after polls closed. It was very striking because, you know, the 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 uh, camp, the election uh, statistics guys um, have all these visualizations that they use now. And one of them that is actually very helpful is they'll do a map you know, map of Pennsylvania, and they will have a little arrow in each county or each, you know, kind of each jurisdiction or something like that. And if, um, and, and those arrows aren't about results, they are about trends relative to a recent election. And so what they were doing last night was putting up that map when a county was pretty much done. And this is really key because with so many different kinds of voting now, uh, you never know. It's 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 not like in the old days where a smart vote counter could look at a key county and say, you know, there's only 20 percent in. But, oh, I, I see where this is going. 20 percent in. You have no idea. Is it the same day? Is it early? You kind of, you know, you have to wait till they're done. Um, but in those maps, you have these little arrows. And so for each county, the arrow shows relative to 2020. How did Fetterman do relative to Biden in 2020? Now, we know Biden won Pennsylvania in 2020, but not by a lot. It was close. And as those come in, you have county after county and they're showing a map. And like Fetterman is beating Biden's margin everywhere, like everywhere. I mean, I think maybe literally everywhere. And and one of the interesting things was that the earliest counties to, uh, you know, get near to done with their counting were the, you know, kind of uh, count white working class sort of Obama Trump counties, which is basically that was always the theory of the case for Fetterman. He's going to get you back in the game in those in those counties. You figure he's going to run up the numbers in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, but you're going to get back into the game in those in those counties. And early on, he was beating Biden's margins consistently and by big margins. And I and I think um, a lot of us were seeing that and saying, um, you know, OK, that's that looks encouraging. But at a certain point, you're like, wait a second, he's killing him. <laughs> this isn't even going to be that close. And uh, and there we are. And as we've as we have discussed for months, that has always been this key thing, because that's the, you know, uh, two or three months ago, we kind of thought, all right, 
this Oz guy's a joke. He's going to win, you know, he's going to lose by 15 points. There's your pickup that gives you the margin to lose a race somewhere. But that was that was a big one and I and I do think for a lot of Democrats it's a it's more than just a single win. Yep. Because of all the stuff with, you know, Mehmet Oz decided a couple months ago, I'm going to win by making fun of this guy's physical condition and kind of dunking on his stroke. And we saw how there was that debate where Fetterman visibly struggled and a lot of the political class, they weren't, certainly weren't mocking Fetterman, but were like, oh, he's toast. You know, he's, he's, he's out of it. No, you know, he's, it's going to collapse now. And the fact that that didn't happen, I think a lot of, a lot of Democrats look at that and say like, you know, good job, man. You know, totally. Yeah. I have the same feeling of, you know, just kind of anecdotally people I've talked to, you know, mostly kind of young liberals. That's the race that they felt really invested in, even the ones that weren't from Pennsylvania. And I think, you know, it's a combination with Fetterman being kind of exciting, being a, a new model of this kind of progressivism in a new shape, in a new mold. Um, and like you're saying, the fact that the whole pundit class expected people to respond with cruelty, you know, to respond like the Oz campaign did. And it seems that people pretty much responded with sympathy and, and maybe even kind of respect for the courage that it took to be suffering in public like that. Um, and, then, you know, the other piece when you were talking about those those arrow shifts is I saw one piece of information fairly quickly that came out saying that Fetterman was running about four points behind Shapiro in all of these county dumps. And then, you know, that always raised the question. Like maybe Shapiro's underperforming. Yeah. Not not well, not as well as we thought that would be bad for Fetterman, but you know, it really didn't take long before we got the Shapiro call. And then you figure, all right, you get that call so early, he's got to be trouncing him, you know? So then Fetterman's kind of out of the woods. So against all expectation, that was the first big pivotal Senate seat that was locked in. Well, I guess we we got New Hampshire first, but New Hampshire was only on the table in in a real Democratic bloodbath. I mean, if they lost there, they were screwed, right? And I guess to an extent, there was what it also showed relatively early is that, yes, there can be polling errors that favor the Democrats. Like this one, this one was not close. Uh, um, and uh, I'd still have to go back and kind of, you know, what was Trafalgar and what was more mainstream pollsters. But pretty much all all the pollsters had a miss on that one. That was not that was not close. And even some legit pollsters had it getting um, uh, pretty close. I will say one thing about Fetterman. And I confess that in the uh, heat and tension of the cycle, I didn't focus on this enough, just just personally, that beyond the political risk of debating, just at a raw personal level, to go out in public and show yourself when you're kind of debilitated, that that takes a lot of courage. That, you know, the kind yeah. of no, no one, um, uh, we all... There is there is something essential about the human condition that it is it is raw and vulnerable to show yourself in a in a broken state, mm-hmm. whether that is a emotionally broken state and a physically broken state um, when you are 
struggling when you are not a hundred percent. And again, I think that I think that feeds into um, you know like with Balduck in New Hampshire. Like, sure, he's a big lie, crazy, but like I don't like most uh, Democratic partisans. I don't think they were like, man, he's got to go down, man. I'm so mad at Balduck. Like, who? Like, whatever, right? Who? Who even is he? And I do think the way that race evolved, a lot of people with Oz were like, man. I hate this guy. Yeah. Like, like they'd really developed a lot of, you know, as you said, a lot of emotional investment in that race. Which is the gamble the Fetterman campaign took. You know, that was purposeful to kind of lean into it and be like, I'm struggling. You struggled. Your loved ones have struggled. I understand. And I, that was not always seen as like a safe bet. You know, I think there were some people who were saying they should run away from the stroke thing a little more, not center it so much. So. Yep. You know, I don't know. Props to a campaign well run, you know, and also probably one of the most fun to observe in years. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So we have Pennsylvania lockdown. Let's do the other race that is locked down as of now, which is, you know, about 1230 on, on Wednesday the 9th, which is we just got the calls for Wisconsin right before we came online. Ron Johnson has been reelected once again after like lots of whining that... Barnes hadn't conceded like 20 minutes before the call was made. Right. A little right, right. antsy there. Um, but interestingly, there we had a case where Tony Evers, in what was the race that surprised me the most last night, not only won, won pretty quickly and pretty dominantly. And that race was pulling at a, you know, a dead heat from the beginning. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that, that, Obviously, uh, on many levels, for a lot of people, Johnson winning again, Barnes losing is a big disappointment. Uh, but we should remember that the governor of Wisconsin is not just a Wisconsin story. That is a big deal going into 2024. And there are a number of races around the country where, you know, in Michigan, critical swing state, always, uh, Democrats took over the whole state. They got the governor. They took over the legislature. Um, there are a f- there are a few other states around the country where uh, Democrats, you know, are maybe taking one chamber of the state legislature. So there there are a number of wins that really kind of uh, bound kind of a big lie number two, you know, kind of two scenario where Trump is on the ballot in 2024 and they've got Republicans and all these key governorships and they're kind of, they're, they're going to, you know, they're going to hold a vote, but then they're just going to make it Trump regardless of what happens. That, you know, that is in some doubt now because you got a Republican governor, I'm sorry, Democratic governor in Wisconsin, Democratic governor in Michigan, Democratic governor in Pennsylvania. So these things are those races are a big deal, not just if you live in that, you know, live in those states. A hundred percent. I think, you know, Evers, well, or Shapiro, those two were huge. I mean, the Wisconsin legislature will be Republican forevermore because they've gerrymandered it completely away from any semblance of democracy there. Um, and in Pennsylvania, that is, you know, one of the one of the races you alluded to. It looks like the Pennsylvania House might flip on the state level. But those are two legislatures that Wisconsin always, Pennsylvania often controlled by Republicans. So having and often by like super majorities. Totally. So yeah. having, you know, Democratic governor backstops there, really, really important. You know, the the Barnes race is disappointing. And I think it's hard not to feel like 
in a state where you've got Evers winning handily and then Barnes losing, it's hard not to feel like just the overtly racist campaign that Johnson was running, especially towards the end, you know, had some effect. Those ads were just, you know, Willie Horton level, black guy means crime is coming to your neighborhood type stuff. And and to some extent, it, it clearly worked. Yeah, I mean, that race and that, yes, there's absolutely. And that race ended up being honestly closer than I thought. You know, I, really? I, I yeah. you know, there was it was kind of one of those races where the polls were anything from, you know, a couple points for Johnson to six or seven points for Johnson. Um, unfortunately, you know, bad as he may be, you've got to give Ron Johnson credit. He's never been very popular like just statistics, you know, just mm-hmm. polling wise. And this is his third time. I mean, you, you know, you it, people say, well, 2016 and yeah, you gotta, it's not a matter of getting, giving him credit. This guy is a very canny politician. He just is. He may be awful, but he's a canny politician. You don't win these three races in a state like that for no reason. And, um, you know, it, it's like, uh, cockroaches have have survived all the great global extinctions over the last several hundred million years or something. You know, you really uh, he's not going to be out until he's until he's totally out. So that, you know, yeah, big disappointment. And that is certainly one where he won real dirty, as you say. I would also add, while definitely a disappointment, I would say it's not akin to Pennsylvania in terms that if Democrats had lost, things would have gotten so much steeper in terms of Senate control. Like if, if Democrats hadn't picked up Fetterman's seat, that means they have they have to have to win Arizona, Nevada and Georgia or Wisconsin, three of those four, all of which I think, well, with the exception of Arizona, but the, the other three, I think, are all considered heavier lifts than we were seeing Pennsylvania for a long time. And so the Wisconsin loss, I think, is disappointing. Um, I think it doesn't cut off the path to control the way that losing some of those others would. So now let's talk about one of uh, the the three that are left that are kind of up in the air right now are Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. Uh, We're seeing more implications that Georgia is going to go to a runoff. It is tight, tight, tight. I bet the, I imagine the Warnock campaign is feeling a little, a little disappointed because if they had eked out like just a bit more of the vote wouldn't have to go to the runoff. And I'm interested for your take, but I think despite the fact that pre-2020 runoffs would have favored Republicans heavily in Georgia, I just really don't see that being the case here for, for a few reasons. One, you know, 2020 kind of turned that conventional wisdom on its head. So we know it can be done, that Democrats can win there. But also, you're going to have all the money and all the scrutiny on this race where the Republicans are running someone who cannot string together a coherent sentence. And to some degree, I think the cast of crazies in this election cycle helped to mask Herschel Walker a little bit. You know, he was one of the many weirdos. And, you know, I've said this before and not everyone agrees with me, but I don't think that Warnock has run that good of a campaign in terms of 
highlighting how insane Herschel Walker is. And I think there's some, uh, I think there's some calculation there that he's trying to be kind of like holier than thou, not get in the trenches, keep his hands clean, perhaps not attract attention to his kind of unsavory past with his ex-wife. But I think that's allowed Herschel Walker to be so freaking weird and to not have to really pay for being so weird in the way that Fetterman, by ridicule and kind of mockery, made Oz just a nut. You know, he made him like weird and embarrassing in the way that the Warnock campaign has not done with Walker. And I think that will happen a lot more in the runoffs. And I also think Walker, to a great extent, kind of rode Brian Kemp's coattails last night. Yeah, and I think yep. in the runoff, that's that, a big. That's not going to be there yep. anymore. That's a, that's a big thing. I think a few things. One is that as we have, as Democrats have learned largely to their, you know, to to their favor, one election is not like another election necessarily. So we can look back at 2020 and say, well, come on, man, you know, like uh, Democrats pulled two rabbits out of their hat in Georgia. Like you know, they got it done. Um, as we said. One election isn't like the other. So you can't just say like, ah, oh, you know, they, 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 they've, got, they've got the runoff thing down. One election is not like another. The other thing I would say, though, is that, I mean, first of all, I agree with you that you have a, uh, um, you have a candidate who, I can't remember now, Herschel Walker's running back or wide receiver, I think, running, running back. back, running back. Uh, it's good because the guy's got a lot of baggage. He's got a lot of stuff to carry. So if you talk about, you know, the white light, you know, the white heat of scrutiny, there's a lot more scrutinized on one guy's side than another, as you say. The other thing is that I have, and maybe this will be um, outdated by the time you hear this episode, but just before we started, um, just before we started recording this episode, I heard from one person in democratic politics that they're very confident that they've got Arizona and Nevada. Now, if that is true... And again, this isn't like something I confirmed. It's just people looking at the numbers saying, hey, feeling pretty good about this. I think that if it is not a battle for control, I think that will be bad for Walker. Because if it's about control, as we have as we saw in this race up to date, Republicans are willing to say, you know, you've got a hundred kids you're not supporting, you funded like 85 abortions. Let's do it because this is about controlling the Senate. I think that if it's not about controlling the Senate, because 51 Democrats as opposed to 50 Democrats is not that big a difference, not that big a deal. Obviously, 52 would have been a big, big deal. If that's the case, I think a certain smattering of Republicans, not a lot. It's still a partisan world we're living in and all that kind of stuff. I think a certain number of Republicans will kind of say, fuck this guy. I mean, this guy's a mess. I, you know, do I do I really do I feel that strongly that I'm that I'm going to vote for this, you know, kind of uh, uh, garbage fire of a person when it's when it doesn't, you know, it, it it's not going to matter that much big picture. So, assuming that uh, Democrats go into that runoff with uh, with fifty seats, I think that will be a slight minus for Walker. Uh, just because, you know, Republicans were already kind of holding their nose to vote for the guy. And I mean, look, it's a month. H- how many more stories are going to come out about him? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, totally. Um, so that runoff 
if it does happen, will be December 6th. So, you know, we are living the same cycle over and over and over again. Yep. Here we are looking forward to a Georgia runoff. Okay, so let's talk about those other two. And then we'll move on to the House. We've got Arizona and Nevada as kind of these. I would say Arizona is basically a a must win, you know, and I think Nevada is a very, very much want to win. So you don't have to be depending on this Georgia runoff. But in Arizona, Mark Kelly has been polling well throughout, even in these kind of last week tightenings, he hasn't seemed to get into as dire a situation as others, even though, as we said, you know, that's what Fetterman's looked like and it didn't end up being that close. But but that was one that I think Democrats have had a lot of confidence in. Um, he, from what I can tell, I mean, Arizona is coming in so freaking slowly. It's like kind of hard to get a good picture, but he seems to be maintaining, um, you know, a, a healthy lead there. He's running ahead of um, Hobbs. Katie Hobbs, who's running against Carrie Lake, who's like, you know, as I'm sure our listeners know, basically, to me, the scariest person running in this cycle, the the telegenic, you know, kind of fascist aiming to be governor she's, of Arizona. She's smooth. Yeah, she's she smooth. Is. Like you see a lot of these guys, like you see Herschel Walker and you're like, like, are you kidding that this guy is running for, for Senate? But you see Carrie Lake in these interviews and she, I mean, she's a former uh, nightly, you know, kind of TV news uh, anchor. So of course she's smooth. She's smooth. She's yeah. smooth. And I think last night we were seeing, you know, people were being like, oh my God, Katie Hobbs is doing so well, which was surprising because Katie Hobbs ran a campaign that has attracted a lot of criticism. Um, and we talked, we talked about this on the pod last week, but you know, she, she avoided the debate maybe for good reasons, but I don't think that's a great look. She kind of wrote this very low key debate and compared to Carrie Lakes, which was very flashy, very, you know, exciting. Um, but Arizona is one of the few states that has more of, you know, kind of a blue mirage than a red mirage structurally. So we're seeing that tighten, tighten, tighten. I would be really surprised if Carrie Lake didn't ultimately win there. Um, but in terms of the Senate, you know, that's one that Democrats are really kind of hanging their hat on. And then let's talk about Nevada, because Nevada is a place where I think both of us have felt rather bullish on Catherine Cortez Masto's chances, even despite how tight it's been, just because, you know, it's kind of like for a while, people were talking about the Oregon governorship and the Oklahoma governorship as, ooh, like these are kind of tight. But, you know, if you're going to put money on those races, you're going to kind of put them on the, the party that rules the state. And in Nevada, my feeling was, yeah, it's tight. But Nevada is a place where Democrats usually pull it out, you know, um, and then I saw John Ralston, the kind of the, the dean of the Nevada Press Corps, and he a couple of days ago put out his kind of early vote prognostication. And the early vote in Nevada is in some ways a lot more reliable than in other states where the voting patterns have shifted so drastically because of the pandemic and because of Trump's conspiracy theories, just because Nevada has been voting basically all by mail for a long time. So you can have a much better sense of what batches from this county mean and have kind of historical data to compare that to. And his projection there was, you know, it's tight, but I think Catherine Cortez Masto pulls it out. So I kind of saw that and was like, okay, that is what my gut has been saying. And then the very next day, he said, I don't know, we're getting a lot of election day vote in. I'm seeing red. And so that pre- it's, it's it's very funny with him because he's so he is he is the master. He is he is 
you know, as you say, he's the dean of 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 Nevada political reporters. He is, uh, you know, who knows what his personal politics are, but he's, you know, he's very, very reliable. And I've been struck in his reports on Twitter that you sort of expect someone to say, okay, I th- my best guess is going to be this. And then maybe, um, you know, there are uh, more, um, you know, there's more Republican same day votes or there's more of this or something that is a little kind of whatever. And you sort of ex- expect them, someone like that to say, uh, okay, there's a lot of Republican same day votes. You know, but there's still this, but there's still that. So here's the context. And at least in his Twitter feed, it's just like, oh my God, tons of Republican same day votes. And like, and you're like, dude, dude, whoa. and he's like, I'm seeing red. And you're like, wait, like, like you're really seeing like what are we talking about here? And I feel like it's been this kind of perils of Pauline sort of roller coaster watching what he says. And and um, you know, maybe some of that is is uh you know, you want to be a bit of a showman and keep, you know, keep people on their on their seats and keep them interested. Or maybe it's just, you know, he's he's responsible and you don't know. Right. But it but it it's because if you if you remember this and maybe some of our listeners will remember this, say over the last 10 days before the election, it sort of seemed like every day there was a thing about, whoa, Republicans, they're bringing it. Whoa. And you're sort of like, man, this is not looking good. Like, what's what's going on here? And then, like, the very last day, he's like, oh, okay, a bunch of votes came in. And my best guess is uh, Master Cortez. And you're like, wait a second. Wait, did something change? Because you've been, like, like kind of red-waving it the whole time. Um, but, <laughs> uh, yeah, so here we are. Yeah. And that's when we're still waiting on that's also coming in extremely slowly. And, you know, as far as I can tell, there's still quite a bit to come from Clark County, which is, you know, the big kind of Democratic stronghold there. Um, One thing we do seem to see is that Steve Sisolak, the Democratic governor in Nevada, is decidedly running behind Cortez Masto, which there have been some rumblings of that, that he hasn't been doing as well as maybe some would expect. And you certainly don't want to be running behind the incumbent senator who, you know, if she does win, it's going it to, it's going to be, be tight out. Yeah. 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 It's, it's funny. There was an, and um, put an asterisk by this because th- this is what I was reading when I was, you know, r- running on fumes in the middle of the night last night. So maybe I, I misinterpreted it or maybe the, the information is, a, is a little out of date. Um, but, there was, uh, let me just remember now, um, going through the evening in Nevada, there was this uh, ongoing question of like, wow, there's really not a lot of same day, election day Democrats voting in Clark County. Like they're underperforming, they're underperforming, which is obviously very concerning for Democrats. And at a certain point, Ralston started saying, you know what? This is such an underperformance that this can't just be they're not turning out to vote. Something's going on here. And he seemed to move towards thinking that the get out the vote operation was directing people towards the drop boxes. Mm. Like to take, you know, take your early votes and just drop them at the drop or, you know, put them in the mailbox. Um, And uh, the. 
you, you know, he knows how these things work. So there was this kind of evolving expectation. Like right now, I think that um, uh, Master Cortez is behind by 20, 30,000 votes or something like that. But, but there is the strong expectation that there are tens or even hundreds of thousands of mail-in ballots that will be heavily democratic. And so she's going to close that gap and will probably close that gap and move into the lead. But that's kind of where we are in that in that race. And I and I, I think the, the the key is, is that it's not even so much when the when those votes are counted. It's the key is going to be when we find out how many of those votes there are. If there are a lot of those votes, she's going to win because it's just it, that's a heavily Democratic um, bucket. If there are fewer, then it's, you know, then it's unclear. OK, so let's move on to the House, which was the chamber that I think surprised nearly everyone. And, you know, we at TPM had kind of identified some bellwethers. We were going to be watching some East Coast races that were in the first poll closings that would kind of give us a sign of which way the wind was blowing that would indicate you know, if Republicans were to pick off some of these seats that we were in for a real, you know, 30 plus seat pickup for Republicans. And some of the biggest were in in Virginia and in Ohio. In Virginia, the big one everyone was watching was Virginia 7th District, which is Abigail Spanberger. Uh, there was just so much speculation that she was going down. And again, her race, not early, early, but, you know, Tuesday night early was called. Wexton and Virginia 10th hung on. Elaine Luria is the only one of kind of the three really competitive um, Virginia districts who did not win. But I think ultimately Democrats were just so breathing a sigh of relief that those they hung on to those seats. But I found the Ohio groupings maybe even more interesting. There I was watching uh, Marcy Kaptur, who was now is going to be the longest serving woman uh, in Congress. Steve Shabbat, who's a Republican who is trying to hold on to his seat. Um, and then an open seat that Amelia Sykes ultimately won. But Democrats swept all three of those very, very competitive Ohio races. And I, my kind of theory about it is I think despite the fact that Tim Ryan lost to J.D. Vance, I think he had some coattails. I think he helped down Absolutely. ballot momentum Absolutely. there. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question about that. I think that um, so it's another, you know, we, we've many of us have sort of anticipated we're going to end up where, man, this guy ran the best race imaginable and he still lost. Mm -hmm. Right. Kind of. And that's sad. Um, but in this case, he I think he helped. I don't think there's any question that he helped Democrats um, probably hold two more House seats. And one thing generally, you know, I've seen a couple of these cycles. I was I, I was there in 1994, in 2010. And the way these cycles go, you kind of come into the night and man, someone like Spanberg, you see it and you're like, whoa, she's toast early. And you're like, oh, OK, here, here's this is where we're going. And, and it just, you know, kind of gets worse from there. And it was very striking last night. Um, you know, you, you get to six, you get to seven, you get into middle of the evening and you're like, all right, you know what? There's a lot of vulnerable Democrats out there and they're all in it. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't know they're going to win, but we're not seeing early calls, right? We're, 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 and I was struck that even like Luria, I mean, she lost, but 
that that didn't get called until like relatively late in the evening. Yep. Um, and it just happened uh, again and again. And at one point, I remember one of the things that really, um, you know, kind of registered with me was when it looked like like Marcy Captor is not just going to win. She's going to win by like maybe double digits. Yep. Right. Um, and you see stuff like that and you're like, this is not a wave. Mm-hmm. Is not a wave election. Yeah. So we had indications, you know, quite early. And I think Democrats have continued to perform well since then. They've, you know, flipped some seats, uh, hung in on competitive ones. You know, another one we were watching was the open seat in uh, Rhode Island second district, which Republicans spent another big tell so yep. heavily yep. on and were extremely cocky about winning. And you know, for Democrats, it's the kind of thing where you can't you can't lose a Rhode Island House seat and keep the majority. That's just not going to happen. And Seth Magaziner, you know, won there. So a kind of a lot of these big, heavily spendy, kind of emotionally invested races, Democrats ended up winning. Now, I would say the exception to what by all accounts, really good Democratic performance, probably a historically good Democratic performance considering the historical patterns and the environment here, is in New York, where there was some measure of Republican success. And, you know, of course, the the big banner one is Sean Patrick Maloney, who's the DCCC chair, uh, losing his seat, even though, and I would add, this, my friend, is karma for elbowing Mondaire Jones out of the district you thought would be easier to win. This is the, the whatever comes home, the cows, they're, they've arrived. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's uh, you know. What is it that comes home? Crows? What's that metaphor? Coming home to roost. Who's roosting? Well, the chi- the chickens come home to okay, roost. Okay, the chickens uh, have arrived. The cows all yes, the the cows all the come home. All the barn animals are other, here. Yeah, they come home <laughs> in a different way. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, he sort of looked out for himself there, and he's going to have to kind of take the lumps on, on that. I strongly suspect he's not done with that district. I think he's looking at that and saying, like, all right, two year sabbatical. I'm back Um, because he's a pretty, you know, he's a pretty uh, he's not some random person. He's a pretty, you know, connected uh, Democrat, both um, in, you know, in 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 that district and also uh, in D.C. And, you know, it sets up this we don't we obviously don't know the the final numbers. I think we strongly suspect that Republicans will control the chamber. It's, you know, shockingly, that is not totally nailed down yet, um, but we certainly expect it. And the question is, what's the margin going to be? You know, it, it it certainly will be very much on the low end of the range that people were projecting. And you have this funny dynamic where you could have a, you know, a razor thin Republican majority that is basically held in place by pickups in New York State, which is, you know, bonkers on 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 various levels um but what is what is relevant though is that creates a situation where you've got a a group of freshman republican lawmakers from new york state and some non-freshmen i assume uh the woman from staten island one i haven't looked specifically at that but just since since republicans are having a good night in new york assume she did in any case those people are going to be are now the, you know the emissaries of Marjorie Green in the New York suburbs or even in New York City 
And good luck with that. Yep. Because, you know, uh, people, you know, the sort of the Jim Jordans and the Marge Greens and the Matt Gateses will be saying, you know, Kevin McCarthy, we own you and you will do this and you will do that. And there will be immense pressure on these uh, New York representatives from New York State to walk those planks on uh, forcing a national bankruptcy, you know, everything under the sun. And, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not um, I'm not saying I know what's going to happen in 2024. It remains the big thing in our political future. But good luck to those to those freshman reps from New York State, the ones that are that are in the greater New York area. they're in, I, you know, I th- really think they're kind of dead men walking, basically, dead women walking. Yeah. And uh, and Lauren Boebert, if she manages to get reelected, because <laughs> yeah. that is still so, Yeah, you know, I, I just looked and that that one, it's funny that it, I'm looking at it right now. She's basically, it's 90% of the vote is in. She's been stuck at about 3,500 um, votes behind. Um, the New York Times sort of, mm-hmm. you know, predictifier still says that the odds are she will pull it out. But those things are, I think, largely programmatic, right? I'm not sure that's based on a kind of a fresh look at at things um, uh, right now. And it, it's been, it's it's 90%, it's, it's been stuck at 90% for a while. I, I really want to hear from an actual person who knows that district and can tell us, you know what, look, all the remaining votes are from a, are from a, a great county for her she's really in the driver's seat uh but who knows and i mean you know at the very least it's funny it is funny yeah the other thing i wanted to say about the importance of the margins by which you know it it, our best guess is still that republicans will control the house is i just saw this like really smug reporter tweet that was like moral victories don't matter in politics you know it's about who has the majority which is just You know, I get it. You don't want Democrats to be happy ever. But (laughs) it just is so wrong here, because as you say, Kevin McCarthy does not have the, you know, skill or intellect to manage the bag of cats majority that would be, you know, something like a a 10 seat majority when he's working with, like you say, the likes of Green and, and Jordan and what have you. But also, and as we've talked about, an importance in stemming your losses in a cycle where you're almost guaranteed to lose house seats is to put yourself in a better position to win in 24, which as you say, with those New York seats, you couldn't really ask for better positioning if you're a Democrat, you know, aside from holding the chamber, which obviously is what they'd prefer. But that margin, you're creating hell for McCarthy. You're creating what's going to be really shit showy foil for Democrats, you know, especially should they they hold the Senate. And you're giving yourself, you're just putting yourself in a really good position to not have to dig out of a massive hole in 24 when there's already going to be so many demands on Democratic spending, both presidential and in a tougher Senate map than we have this cycle. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've seen it in earlier wave elections that, you know, if you lose like 50 seats, you are, yes, you're going to have a bunch of crazies and some of them won't you know, won't make it into their second term. But you're also going to end up with some people who turn out to be good reps in the sense that they really get, you know, they really kind of dig into their districts. They're doing 
good constituent service. And even, you know, even even if they are, you know, Republican reps in what should be a Democratic district, some of those people, it's going to take you several cycles to, un, you know, to kind of dislodge them. And so absolutely, it um, it makes a huge difference. It makes yeah. a huge difference. So before we wrap, I did just want to kind of mention some other wins that were not on the House or Senate level that Democrats got last night. We referred to Michigan. Michigan was essentially as sweepy as sweeps can get for Democrats. You know, Whitmer got reelected. Jocelyn Benson, Secretary of State. And again, Dana Nessel, AG. And again, won the legislature for the first time in 40 years. They kept the Democratic advantage on the state Supreme Court. They passed an amendment enshrining abortion rights in the Constitution. I mean, you really, if you're a Michigan Democrat, you cannot ask for anything more than what you got last night. Um, Democrats got trifectas in Maryland, thanks to Wes Moore, the state's first black governor, who also will end, uh, you know, Larry Rogan, Larry Hogan was term limited out, but kind of ends the period of of moderate Republican governance in that state. You've got a trifecta in Massachusetts, thanks to Mara Healey, the state's first woman governor and first openly gay governor. Um, we seem to be heading towards a flip of the Pennsylvania House. I mean, these things are big and they're important. And especially in a world where Republicans have so dominated, you know, state level victories, I think that they shouldn't be kind of understated. And Michigan in particular, I just want to add, and one of our readers kind of flagged this to me, which was such a good point that Democrats had not won the Michigan legislature in 40 years. And in 2010, when a bunch of Republicans came in off the Tea Party wave, they gerrymandered the shit out of that state. And then in 2018, voters in a ballot initiative decided to have an independent redistricting commission. And, you know, look where we are now. So that, you know, is a kind of an interesting story in and of itself. But I think the evening was peppered with these kind of like morale wins for Democrats, which I think felt all the all the more stark because we all went into this night with every single, you know, big politicogi outlet being like, Democrats are going to get killed. It's going to be a bloodbath. Abandon hope, all ye who come, you know, start preparing to live in Canada. Like it is going to be terrible. And that is just not a situation that we're looking at. Yeah, it's, you know, and one thing is that, you know, there are uh, a number of very sharp election analysts, people, you know, the Cook Report and Sabato and all these kind of all these kind of places. And I, because I'm obsessive, you know, I kind of keep an eye on what these people say during an election day. You know, they're not going to say kind of what they know, but if you look closely, you can kind of see where they're going. And these people were kind of like, oh, it's going to be big. You know, I thought it might be close, but we're talking red wave. And um, it's funny because, you know, everybody goes into the election saying like, don't talk about, don't go off on the early vote. You never know what the early vote means. Stop. And then like yesterday, you've got the same people saying, oh boy, it's big. I'm I'm looking at the looking at the numbers and it's and and I'll tell you I saw some of that stuff and I'm like I I you know I've seen this movie before 
I don't, I'm, this is not good. And um, in one case, I think what it was is that one of these people saw the results in Florida where Republicans just stomped and assumed, not totally crazily, that like, that's the trend. And that was one of the, the sort of the um, uh, factors of last night that it was a different election in, in the state of Florida. You know, uh, Ron DeSantis just like destroyed Chris. I mean, he he won by like almost 60 percent. I mean, that was a, you know, triumphant victory for him. And, uh, you know, even Rubio, mm -hmm. you know, totally solid win. And then I think they were I think they were looking at like, you know, a couple hours of numbers from Luria's district. And obviously she did uh, go down to defeat. Um, but, yeah, you know, people it, it is I, I taught there's um person I know uh, in one of these states that Democrats ended up doing fairly well and someone very connected politically. Uh, and I was talking to this person early yesterday morning and uh, got some, you know, got some read about, you know, kind of early voting t totals. This person is saying like, you know, it's looking solid. Like we're not seeing, we're not seeing bad stuff for us. You know, not, we're not killing it, but like not seeing bad stuff for us. And this person said like, you know, I don't expect a polling error. I expect a narrative error. And that's really what we got. The polls basically, like Democrats outperformed the polls by a bit, but most of the races that we talk about, the polls either more or less called it or were fairly close. It's just that uh, a lot of people and not just, and a lot of Democrats because of recent elections, we're looking at a dead even race and say, I know how this works. A dead even race is one that Republicans win by four points. Because I remember 2020 and I remember 2016. And even in some states, there were states in 2018 where that was the case, you know, in, in a few key Senate states. So, um, you know, uh, in addition to having a pretty good night, one of the things that is good about this cycle for Democrats is you get a reminder. Polling errors go in different directions. You know, it, it's, 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 uh, and sometimes the surprises go in different directions. Um, and that is something that, um, for kind of understandable reasons, after the last few years, uh, Democrats were kind of gun shy, you know, because we, we remember what happened in 2020, you know, that great uh, North Carolina Senate seat that everybody's excited about, right? And retiring Susan Collins. You know, you kind of get used to like, ah, oh, tie. Okay. Republican plus five. Yeah. No, totally. Uh, I think, and the other thing I wanted to mention in kind of the moral victory section, which I forgot, is that in Kentucky, um, an anti-abortion amendment that would have just written into the state constitution that there is no right to an abortion, that went down even as, you know, like Rand Paul won re-election the second that polls closed. But like, and while, like 90 to 10 or something. Right, exactly. Like North Korea numbers. Yeah. And while... You know, in Kentucky, it's not exactly the same barnstorming result that it is in Kansas because abortion is essentially non-existent in Kentucky as it is. They've got a six-week ban. They've got a trigger ban. And all this really does is kind of keep alive the legal challenges to those bans. Still, I mean, we could not ask for a, a more clear 
body of evidence that abortion access is very popular, even in really deep red states. And I think while we're kind of sorting through maybe why Democrats kind of overperformed and why I think we can at least say that the enthusiasm advantage is does not seem to have been with the Republicans, which is what a lot of that narrative was about. You know, abortion is obviously going to come up as something that was uh, underestimated or disregarded or not seen as as potent as it was. And we are at this point, we've really started to amass a lot of data points that do confirm at the very least that abortion access is very popular across the country and that people are willing to come out and vote for it, even if they are going with you know, traditional Republican candidates on other parts of the ballot. Yeah, one thing I don't I don't know if the, where the final final numbers uh, are on this, but one thing that was striking to me is that you know the specifics of the amendments were different. But you had a you had a abortion referendum in Michigan, and you had one in Kentucky. And what was striking was that the results were pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Now, Michigan isn't Massachusetts or California, but these are different states. And uh, two things. One is, as you say, it shows that abortion rights are quite untethered to conventional partisanship. You can have Rand Paul run away with it and an anti-abortion referendum lose. And the other thing it makes clear more prospectively is, you know, every state where they have propositions or referendums, you need to get one of these on the ballot in 2024, because I think we can see, I mean, A, in a sort of a more narrowly political sense, that's going to help Democrats. But more importantly, the abortion rights side is going to win a lot of those. I, You know, we've seen that. I mean, we saw it happen in Kansas. We saw it happen in Michigan. We saw it happen in Kentucky. There are a lot of states where basically Democrats cannot win, where voters are going to vote for abortion rights. And so that's going to be a big deal in 2024. And I think, you know, it's two years. So, I mean, that's not great. We're in this reality um, for uh, a significant period of time. But people can very realistically look forward to the possibility that there are a number of red states where abortion can become legal again in 2025. You just got to get it on the ballot. And I think, you know, one other thing that is going to come up is that um, there are there are certain states where we have seen in recent years, there's a referendum, one side wins, and then the Republican legislature says, well, nope, <laughs> you know, and that's going to be a whole other issue. But this is a real thing. I mean, Kentucky is a really conservative state and conservative in ways that are generally not good for abortion rights. And yet here we are. So that is going to be, uh, that's a big thing going into 2024. Yeah. Kind of as we wrap here, I think I'm curious to hear what yours are, but something I'm interested to see as, you know, data settles more and we have a clearer picture is I have seen takes on the youth vote, youth participation in this election that are literally all over the map. Like I've seen some people being like, look at Gen Z, look how much they voted. They are uh, you know, politically potent in a way that the youth vote hasn't been before. And they were a huge factor in this race. And then I've seen people saying, 
youth turnout was about where it's been in other cycles. So I, I have no clear picture and I'll be really, really, really interested to find out what the truth is there. Because if the reality is that the the up and coming new voters are more politically engaged than the generation above. I mean, that is a that'd be a huge, huge deal for Democrats. And I think would end up retrospectively giving the team Biden a lot of credit for unrolling the student loan forgiveness stuff kind of right before the election, despite the fact that it's you know been tied up in court ever since it happened. Yeah, I mean, and as you say, there there are there's tons of fog of war on an election day on the, on the couple days after, but after that, and I don't even you know I have only a very loose understanding of how these things works, how these things work, but you get the data files and and within a relatively short period of time, you really know the details of who actually voted what way. And as you say, that will be very interesting because we will, you know, is it, you know, maybe it ends up that, you know, we may think abortion played a big role, but maybe it won't be obvious statistic. Like maybe there won't be, um, you know, a surge of first time women voters who played a key role, or maybe there will, right? We don't, I mean, obviously those things can show up those things can have an impact in ways that are not um, totally clear statistically. So you've got a lot of fog of war, um, and but we're going to see those things, and it'll be you know we're we're going to see that information, and uh, we're going to you know a week from now. I mean, we we may not even totally know the results of the election a week from now, but we will start to understand these these. Uh, you know, the demographic trends in, in more detail. Anyway, uh, still a lot to, still a lot to learn about the details of this election. Obviously, we're going to be covering this uh, nonstop at talkingpointsmemo.com and uh, stay tuned. And obviously, we will be back with you um, uh, next week. We also have, you know, you're not going to, um, You'll probably hear this episode after we do this, but we have an event, an impromptu uh, event coming up at 2.30. That's only a little less, a little more than an hour from now. But uh, we, we have the, the, two, the two Democrats who were saying over the last number of weeks, that red wave is a mirage. And a lot of people thought, you know, what are you guys smoking? You know, wishful thinking. But they were right. And those two guys are Simon Rosenberg and Tom Bonyard. And we are going to do a live briefing with them at 2.30. Like I said, you're going to hear this episode after that briefing is done. But we're going to post that video. So you will be able to see it um, whenever you hear this, uh, this episode of the podcast. Uh, if you want to watch it, uh, go to talkingpointsmemo.com. We'll have it, you know, prominently posted so you can watch that discussion. It'll be really interesting. Uh, let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off with the promo code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. And that is it for this episode. All right. Talk to you next week. See ya. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 
can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car right in your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.